Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Roaring Twenties. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Post-World War I Troubles. What do we typically think of when we think of the 1920s? Some picture the Great Gatsby, with opulent wealth and parties. Others see mobsters in suits during Prohibition, or moonshiners outracing cops. In fact, it was a decade of conflict and dichotomies. Typically, in the aftermath of a large war, there are numerous domestic social upheavals as the country comes off war footing and returns to a sense of normalcy. And the United States certainly had its share of these issues, which many we are still fighting to this day. For instance, in the spring of 1918 to 1919, a worldwide H1N1 influenza pandemic infected 500 million people worldwide, and some called this the Great Influenza Epidemic or the Spanish Flu. It ultimately killed between 15 to 50 million people worldwide, including 675,000 Americans, which was seven times the number of American deaths during World War I. It was caused by the malnourishment, overcrowding of hospitals, and poor hygiene that was exacerbated by the First World War. There was a delayed response from the American government, though after a time, social distancing measures were introduced throughout the country. Face masks were worn, though there was some resistance to this, like the Anti-Mask League of San Francisco, which led to another outbreak in the city. Any of this sound familiar? There was also a massive scandal in sports, called the 1919 World Series Scandal, when the Cincinnati Reds won the pennant, but after the White Sox had conspired with gamblers to throw the series. This tainted baseball for many years. There was also a devastating economic recession that was globally present. In fact, Great Britain had a prolonged slump all the way from the 1920s to the 1950s, so they never experienced a Roaring Twenties the way that the elite of America did during this decade. This economic recession also led to large-scale labor unrest. From 1919 to 1920, millions of American workers went on strike. These workers wanted to keep and expand the concessions they had got during wartime, but this ultimately backfired because the Bolsheviks in Russia were calling for a worldwide communist revolution, so many Americans blamed the communists for this unrest. This led to the Red Scare of 1919 to 1920, which was a crusade against suspected communists. Now, this fear had some legitimate sources, as in September 1920, when a cart of dynamite exploded on Wall Street, killing 38 and wounding more than 100 civilians. In the aftermath, the Attorney General, A. Mitchell Palmer, ultimately rounded up 6,000 suspected radicals and deported many aliens due to this attack. In fact, this is where J. Edgar Hoover, of later FBI fame, built his career from prosecuting the Reds. While the government went after people, so too did American citizens, especially in the South, where communists were beaten or lynched for daring to work with African Americans 
to organize against economic oppression. Now, you will read this week the Palmer speech, Case Against the Reds, and so you should think, who does he blame, and what solutions does he put forward to solve this? Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Racial Issues. There were substantial racial issues in the aftermath of the First World War. Many black veterans returned to the United States determined not to be pushed around. In response to asserting their manhood and humanity, white mobs attacked black communities. In 1919, there were race riots all over the country, from Los Angeles to New York. But for our purposes here, let us focus on Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Elaine, Arkansas, as some of the worst examples of white violence on black communities. The Elaine Massacre began on September 30, 1919. It was about controlling black labor. If you recall, the problem with sharecropping was that plantation commissaries charged huge prices and did not pay market price for crops harvested by black farmers. These people were tired of such exploitation and they wanted the benefits of citizenship, so African Americans attempted to unionize with the help of some white socialists. But this is during the Red Scare, and racial tensions were high. So at a gathering in a black church, remember that from Reconstruction onward, black churches are the centers of these communities. Well, at this church, a armed group of whites opened fire on the building, and when African Americans returned fire, Whites spread rumors that the blacks had attacked them first. This led to over 1,000 white terrorists from Arkansas and Mississippi, many of whom were police officers or veterans of the First World War, to begin murdering hundreds of African Americans all over the Delta region around Elaine. In fact, Governor Charles H. Bro of Arkansas and the World War I veteran Colonel Isaac Jenks personally escorted 583 soldiers, including a machine gun battalion, from Camp Pike in Little Rock to Elaine. For the next five days, Colonel Jenks and his troops, assisted by these vigilantes, hunted black people over a 200-mile radius. They scorched and burned homes with families inside. They slaughtered and tortured others, and they used machine guns on civilians. When the massacre was over, the survivors were then brought before a prejudicial court in order to punish these victims. On October 31st, a grand jury indicted 122 black men and women for offenses ranging from murder to night riding. A jury even convicted 12 black men for murder of three white men, and these men were given the death penalty despite the fact that those whites had actually been killed by the white mob during their shooting frenzy. Any confessions that were taken were extracted through torture. And officials and those responsible attempted to cover all of this up, but many remembered what they saw. A local school teacher testified that, quote, 28 black people were killed and their bodies were thrown into a pit and burned. Another said, quote, 16 African Americans were killed, and their bodies were hanging from a bridge outside of Helena. Conservative estimates say that about 150 African Americans were killed, but we now estimate that it could have been anywhere from 200 
to 800 people who were massacred. However, on one positive side of the story, there was a black lawyer called Scipio Africanus Jones from Little Rock, and through his efforts, he got those 12 men acquitted, ultimately taking the case before the Supreme Court. Despite this atrocity, the massacre continued to be covered up, and it wasn't until recently when a Truth and Reconciliation Commission was set up that we finally shed light on these horrific events. And please click on the link on the PowerPoint to watch a short documentary about this massacre. Okay, so did you watch it? It's horrifying. Let us now move to the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, which raged from May 31st to June 1st. Tulsa had one of the most affluent African-American communities in the country and was nicknamed Black Wall Street. The story here is unfortunately a familiar one. A black man was accused of assaulting a white female elevator operator and was taken into custody. Then, a white mob went to the jail hoping to lynch the man, and a group of African Americans came hoping to prevent this. These African Americans were convinced to leave by the sheriff, but when they tried, they were ambushed, and according to the sheriff, all hell broke loose. Twelve people were killed in a firefight. Then, the white mob spread rumors that African Americans were intending to kill more, and they were given weapons by local authorities and deputized. As a result, rioters rampaged through Black Wall Street, destroying 35 blocks of the district, causing more than $1.5 million worth of real estate damage and destroying $750,000 worth of private property. That is the equivalent of $32.25 million in today's currency. All told, 10,000 African Americans were left homeless. Perhaps even more shocking, this is one of the only times in American history where aircrafts were used to bomb targets on American soil. This occurred when whites commandeered planes and fired on innocent African American civilians as well as their homes and businesses using firearms and improvised explosives. This was later confirmed by authorities who claimed they needed the planes to put down a quote, Negro uprising, end quote. The killing and destruction went on through the night, and the next day, the Oklahoma National Guard arrived, though they too helped the whites. While this massacre began with a confrontation of two groups, the real motive was to expel the well-off black community because oil had been discovered near their community. Look at the photo. It literally says, quote, run the Negro out of town, and it shows the destruction thereof. This episode touches on an important aspect of American law, the idea that property is protected, because the protection of property allows social mobility, but also concentrates wealth. A continuity of American history is the protection of white wealth and the destruction, or at least non-protection, of black wealth. And this is part of the racial gap that we live with to this day. In this era, we also see the revival of the KKK. At a Klan meeting in 1922 in Mena, Arkansas, the speaker denounced, quote, 
smutty literature, suggestive songs, immoral pictures, jazz dances, jury dodgers, bootleggers, moonshiners, gambling, N-word upstarts, yellow dog politicians, Catholic control of schools and public affairs, unrestricted immigration, and Jewish influences in financial and theatrical affairs, end quote. Basically, they hate everything and anyone who isn't a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. This pretty much sums up the revived clan and what its members opposed. And according to one historian, this group was opposed to the concept of modernity itself, meaning fear of the future. The clan was especially strong in the South, the West, and the Midwest. In fact, Indiana was one of the hotbeds of clan activity. By 1925, the Ku Klux Klan had 5 million members, and they called themselves 100% Americans. Clan activity was very public, and they even organized the KKK March on Washington, where thousands came out in their hoods in the nation's capital. But the KKK weren't the only ones opposed to immigration, because in 1921 and 1924, Congress placed quotas on the number of Europeans who could immigrate to the United States. In addition, Japanese immigration was also banned in 1924, and these immigrants and their descendants were not allowed to own land. The point is that following the war, the country did not enter into a Roaring Twenties free of conflict. Rather, the beginning of the decade was defined by economic instability, racial tensions, and political repression. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Harding's Presidency. The election of 1920 took place in the midst of all this post-war turmoil. The Republicans nominated one-term Ohio Senator Warren Harding, who called for a return to normalcy. Harding handily defeated the Democrat James Cox of cable family fame. The Harding presidency is usually remembered for corruption, as Harding appointed a number of cronies called the Ohio Gang to his cabinet. The most notorious of this cohort was Secretary of the Interior Albert Fall, who was responsible for the Teapot Dome scandal. This scandal involved oil reserves in Wyoming and California, which had been set aside by the government in case of a federal emergency, for instance, used by the Navy in case of a war. But Secretary Fall leased these reserves to private companies for a $400,000 bribe and a herd of cattle. But Harding also appointed some very talented men, including Commerce Secretary Herbert Hoover and Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon, the latter of whom went on to serve the next two presidents. Mellon, in many ways, is a scion of modern conservatism. He believed Americans were better off with less government regulation, and he sought to reduce corporate income and inheritance taxes. He believed that if wealthy people were allowed to keep their money, they could invest and produce jobs for all. And in modern parlance, we call that trickle-down economics. Harding and his Republican successors gutted regulatory abilities of the ICC, the Federal Reserve, and other agencies. Additionally, throughout the 1920s, the Supreme Court typically struck down progressive laws that regulated business, child labor, and the minimum wage. 
In some ways, this is called the end of the progressive era. And it also led to an unstable and unstable economy that directly led to the Great Depression before the decade was out. However, on August 2nd, 1923, Harding died of pneumonia and thrombosis. His administration scandals had not yet fully broken, and millions mourned his death. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Silent Cal. Upon his death, the vice president, Calvin Coolidge, assumed the presidency. Silent Cal and Treasury Secretary Mellon continued Harding's laissez-faire economic policies. But why was he called Silent Cal? Well, there's a story about Coolidge's taciturn demeanor. There was a famous D.C. socialite who promised her friend she could get the president to say three words at an upcoming White House function. So the entire night, she sat next to him and talked and talked, attempting to draw him into conversation. But by the end of the night, she was desperate for a rejoinder and finally told the president about the bet, to which he replied, You lose. During Silent Cal's administration, the Great Mississippi River Flood of 1927 occurred. This is the single most destructive flood in the history of the United States. Flooded over 27,000 square miles of land, it affected 94% of the 630,000 people living in Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Secretary of Commerce Hoover, called a great humanitarian, oversaw the controversial relief efforts. Unfortunately, while the aid was federally funded, it was locally administered. So what do you think the effect of this will be? That's right, bias and distribution of aid, as plantation owners get all of it, and tenant farmers or sharecroppers get none. As a result, 200,000 African Americans were displaced from their homes and sent to segregated aid camps. These camps were full of disease and were undersupplied and put on the worst land possible where mosquitoes were prevalent. Black camps were guarded by National Guard troops to keep African Americans from leaving the area and in order to control their labor. Many left the region entirely and joined the Great Migration to the northern and midwestern industrial cities looking for work and hoping to flee Jim Crow segregation. So this was a tragedy. One of the most well-known acts of Coolidge's administration came in 1928, when Cal's Secretary of State, Frank Kellogg, signed the Kellogg-Briand Pact with France. This pact outlawed war as an instrument of national policy, which, while amusing to us now, was a sign of the times and a rejection of the needless bloodshed of the First World War. Ultimately, it was signed by 65 countries, though it failed in its objectives. Thus, the first two administrations of the 1920s were ones of relatively weak presidents and a return to laissez-faire policies that would be unprepared for a coming economic disaster. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The War on Alcohol. With the passage of the 18th Amendment, personal and public behavior became criminalized by the central government. The criminal justice system was introduced into the home in ways never before envisioned in American governance. As a result, 
Prohibition quickly lost its luster among many, especially in the urban Northeast, as most urban immigrants and their offspring hated it, since various German or Eastern European cultures used alcohol in many ceremonies. The Democratic Party was split between Northeastern wets and Southern and Western dries. So a wet is someone who doesn't like prohibition, a dry does like it. As people attempted to get these substances, speakeasies and bootlegging proliferated. Speakeasies were illegal bars that served alcohol to paying customers for exorbitant markups. Bootleggers were men or families who brewed their own liquor, like moonshine. In fact, according to tradition, NASCAR and other racing sports got their start from bootlegger drivers who used fast cars to outrun the authorities. In addition, many people faked converting to Judaism, as Jews were allowed to use wine for Shabbat religious services. Much like today, crime skyrocketed as Americans were willing to pay good money for illicit, mood-altering substances. Organized crime became big business in cities like Chicago, where Scarface, also called Al Capone, operated. Politicians and big city political machines, like Atlantic City's Nucky Thompson, were in on the action as well, and they used the veil of local government to get rich off of the illegal liquor business. And as an aside, he is the subject of the HBO show Boardwalk Empire, starring Steve Buscemi, though the show does take a bit of artistic license in its depiction. By 1930, organized crime was garnering an estimated 12 to $18 billion per year, which was way more than the federal government took in. Think of all that lost revenue and what the government could built with it. While that is one side of prohibition, the other is the growth of law enforcement bureaucracy, which many historians call the prison industrial complex. In this era, we see the expansion of the federal government's power in state affairs, using spying, warrantless wiretapping, the militarization of the police, and the growth of prison systems that funnel convict labor to many businesses and state projects. And to this day, prison labor keeps wages low for all workers and is filled with corruption and immorality. We tend to think of enforcement as urban, but this expansion also goes into rural areas, where many bootleggers and moonshiners use fast cars to get liquor from upcountry stills to local towns. Enforcement also tended to be selective. Rich whites could escape prosecution and their speakeasies were generally untouched, but African-American speakeasies were often targeted as were bars that catered to union members or other potential subversives. To enforce prohibition, many locales used mob violence. Local cops dabbled in corruption to persecute minorities and workers or to reinforce the social order. Others wanted to get rich or gain local power, and in many small cities, one brother was the sheriff and the other was the moonshiner, so the sheriff would target his brother's competition. Many evangelicals continued to support prohibition for years, but the 18th Amendment was ultimately repealed by the 21st Amendment in 1933. 
This era also saw a huge rise in gun-related violence between the FBI, police, and gangsters. There was little gun regulation in this era, so criminals armed themselves accordingly. Submachine guns like the Tommy gun and automatic repeating rifles like the BAR, as well as sawed-off shotguns and other firearms, became the favored tools of gangs who warred with each other for territory and got into firefights with the authorities. Many police and government agents were gunned down in their battle against these criminals. And as a result of this chaos, the 1934 National Firearm Act was passed by Congress, which imposed federal gun control laws across the country. This precluded the use of certain types of firearms, explosives, and other devices from civilian use without extensive permits and fees. This is basically the beginning of federal government regulation over firearms, which is the source of much debate today. I'm going to cut off the lecture here, and we will pick up with part two next time. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.